Welcome to week five of a 38-week series that has us walking through the letter or the book of Romans. We've currently covered 43 of the 433 verses, meaning that we are 10% of the way through this book. And Romans is truly the greatest of Paul's letters. It's the most influential letter ever written on the face of the earth. J.I. Packer expresses it so well when he says, All roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And, hear this, when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what might happen. And that's the prayer today, that this message, we walk through this together, it would get into our hearts and it would leave us not the same, but different. And right now, we're at a difficult part of this book. We are walking through the ugliness, the destructiveness, the wretchedness of sin. And and honestly, I I hope that we are experiencing that together. I hope we're feeling that together. And I hope that we are being broken over our wretchedness of our sins. I hope that um, we're growing to hate our sin even more and more. And even doing as we just saying, that we'll run to our Father again and again and again and again and again. Romans 1, we, we saw Paul reveals the unrighteousness of man and showing us how pagan, the pagan godless world has rejected God. And because of the pagan world's rejection, God has given the world over to godlessness and over to the wickedness that it has chosen. So where Romans 1, 1 excuse me, shows the unrighteousness of man, Romans 2 shows the self-righteousness of man. The problem is that religious people would have looked down upon the pagan world and judged them because they sin differently than the religious person does. And so what Romans 2 does is it confronts the person. You're going to be be confronted again today with the person who lifts themselves up by constantly bringing other people down, by constantly judging other people. Or as we said last week, the one who judges the person who has fallen in the mud all the while forgetting that they used to be in the mud, or if they're still self-righteous, they are still in the mud. They're still there. And as we saw last week, wherever that is true of us, Jesus stands against our efforts. Wherever that is true of us, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Wherever that is true of us, the Father desires more from us and better for us. And in continuing this chapter, in verses 12 through 29 that we come to today, the Apostle Paul now gets to the heart of the matter, which is a matter of the heart. And that is today's message title, A Matter of the Heart. So I want us this morning to once again place ourselves before this book. And I say it that way because according to this book, it's a mirror. It shows us exactly who we are. So let's place ourselves before it and see what the Word of God would say concerning us today. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. We're going to read verses 12 through 29 together. And it says this, For all who have sinned without the law will, be, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you again today. We do so asking you to speak, asking you, Lord, to minister in a way that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, today will be the day that they run to you for the first time. But if there are others in here, Lord, who are believers and yet running in plain sight, that today would be the day they run to you again or again and again and again. Father, just speak to us by your word, through your spirit. Speak, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So I want to begin by telling a story I've shared before, and I'm going to try to make a point with it. But several, several years ago, myself and Missy, we were newly married, I guess. We had uh, Morgan, but a particular night, it was a Monday night or Tuesday night, one or the other. We had just eaten dinner. Morgan must have been with one of the grandparents um, because mine and Missy's plan for the rest of the night after eating dinner was we got our, our hampers. We were bringing in the, the laundry. We were going to um, spend the rest of the evening watching TV and folding clothes. And that was our great, amazing date night, I guess, or plans. So anyway, um, a few minutes later, the doorbell rang, and I went, uh, answered the door, and uh, there was a vacuum cleaner salesman. And he was like, and I was like, man, now's not a good time. And he was like, man, I really have to uh, make presentations. Please let me come in. And I said, we only got 15 minutes, and we're talking. And, of course, I didn't know any better. Also, you know, the scriptures say sometimes you will entertain angel unaware. So maybe, just maybe, turns out this guy was not that. So uh, I let him in, and uh, 15 minutes turned into 30, which turned into 45. And so we're sitting on the couch. Um, the laundry we were supposed to fold is right here. Um, 45 minutes in, he's down on the floor with the vacuum cleaner on, vacuuming everything. He's talking with us, thinking he's doing well. As he's talking, he's doing this, and all of a sudden, he sucks something up in his vacuum cleaner. And he's like, what in the world? So he takes his vacuum cleaner apart, takes it all apart. He says, oh, I see what it is, grabs it. It's Misty's underwear. <laughs> to which he folds up, hands it to her, and tries to keep going. Now, I don't know about you, but... When you get into somebody else's unmentionables, sales call is over. 
Like when you get in somebody else's dimensionables, it's like ball game. It's the end. And he tried to keep going and finally I said, man, you got to go. And he was like, well, I don't have anywhere to go. Um, my ride won't get here for another hour. And I said, well, you told me 15 minutes, so it's really not my problem. And he said, well, you, can you take me across town? And I said, no, I'm not taking you across town. And he said, well, can I sit on your front porch? So he sat on our front porch for the next two hours while we were inside. It was the weirdest thing ever. Maybe he was an angel. I'm not sure. But here's the correlation. In a very real and yet very weird sense, the Apostle Paul does not let up in this book until he gets into all of our unmentionables. And that's the point here. Paul wants to make sure that we are all uncomfortable and that we are all placed under the weight and the guilt of our own sin. And it's clear from the amount of words that Paul uses and gives concerning the judgment that sin is extremely serious. There's no doubt that Paul wants us to feel the burden of our sin. Paul wants us to feel the weight of our sin until we either cry out, what must I do to be saved? Or either as a child of God, we long to be done with sin altogether. Paul wants us to feel that. So what I want to do today is I want to place three truths before us. Two of them are pretty standard. One of them is going to be a little uncomfortable for a little while, but we're going to endure it together because we go exactly where the text takes us. So truth number one, very standard, but is this. Our hearts are condemned. Our hearts are condemned. So Paul begins in this section, verses 12 through 16, explaining that God judges the Jew and the Gentile by different standards. Yet both standards leave both the Jew and the Gentile guilty. So since the Jews had the law, the Ten Commandments, they would be judged by the law. But the Gentiles didn't have the law of God, so they would be judged by a different standard. Listen to verse 12 again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So those under the law will be judged by the law because the law, the Ten Commandments, tells us how bad we really are. The Ten Commandments are the best examples for us to show us where our hearts stand before God. Let's take a little test together. I want us to walk through real quick the Ten Commandments and take a test and see how we do. If you want to follow along, you can turn to Exodus 20, but I'm just going to kind of say them together or in order. So commandment number one tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. So can you say this morning, I've never put anything uh, before God in my life. Can you say God has been first in my thoughts, in my affections, in my actions? You can't. So therefore, we are all 0 for 1 in this test. Commandment number two, you shall have no carved images or no idols. This commandment is about reshaping God into our liking or desiring purpose from something that isn't God. So have you ever found yourself worshiping anything that wasn't the Lord? I'm thinking we're all 0 for 2. It has been said that the fundamental problem in lawbreaking is always idolatry. It always begins there. Commandment number 3, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. So can you say, I have always held the name of God in the highest respect. I've always represented the name well. For example, I have never called myself a follower of Christ and not really followed him. Yes or no? Status update, I'm 0 for 3. Commandment number 4, remember the Sabbath 
day. So this has to do with fully giving God what belongs to him. Can you say you've consistently and constantly done that? Remember, the purpose of the Sabbath was to rest in God's provision in the midst of every circumstance. So when life has gotten tough and circumstances have gotten tough, have you constantly trusted and rested in God alone? Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. If you think you passed this one, just pick up the phone and call your parents or your siblings or your relatives, and they'll tell you stories by which you have failed in this one. Then we get to number six, you shall not kill. And now we're thinking, finally one that I can pass. And then Jesus came along in Matthew 5, and he messed that one up for us because Jesus said, if you look at someone and hate them in your heart or you wish harm upon them, then you are guilty and you have broken the heart of this commandment. And we fell once again. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And maybe in here we're going, well, that's another one I think I'm good with. And then Jesus, of course, messed that one up too. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you look at someone who isn't your husband or wife and look at them lustfully, you have broken this commandment as well. Even a lustful thought makes you guilty before God. Then we get to commandment eight, you shall not steal. Have you ever taken Something that doesn't belong to you. And I've actually confronted a person one time that said, I've never stolen anything in my life. And I'm like, so money, possessions? No. So somebody else's credit or praise? No, never done that. How about God's? How about God giving you abilities, giving you things, and you using them and never giving God the praise or the glory for it? You know what you've done? You've stolen his glory. And every single one of us are guilty of that. All of us. Then we get to commandment number nine. It's getting really quiet in here. I think we're doing bad on this test. Commandment number nine, you shall not lie. I'm not even going to explain this one because we've all done it, and some of you have even done it in church. That's a really bad place to lie. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. Can you say, I've never been greedy. I've never been jealous of someone else's abilities, looks, position, or possessions. That I've been fully content with everything that God has given me. So how did you do? You know, uh, being honest, I'm 0 for 10. If you're honest, I would say you're probably right there with me. So here's the question. If you get a zero on God's exam, do you think God's going to look at you and say innocent? Or is God going to look at you and say guilty? The bad news is, listen, we are all guilty before a holy God, and we are deserving of God's wrath. And now, generally, we have two responses when we come to this point. Either we say, well, the commandments aren't really fair. That's not really fair. But here's the deal. God's commandments aren't the problem. Understand, God's laws do not make our hearts sick and rebellious. The law shows us how sick and rebellious our hearts actually are. The second response that people give is like, well, I'm better than so-and-so, and truly, God's, he's got a grade on a curve, right? So in the end, I'll be okay, but that cheapens the holiness of God. The, the Word of God doesn't let, her, let us do either of those things. The Word of God maintains from beginning to end that God demands perfection, and it shows us again and again that we are imperfect. As we said before, the law is like an x-ray. 
An x-ray can't heal you, but it shows you you're broken. Another story I've told before, but when Morgan was in first grade, her school did a huge fundraiser, and they purchased a new playground that had monkey bars. Now, if you don't know anything about that, monkey bars are basically a contraption of death that had, had to be designed by insurance companies in order to keep the cash flow coming in. So the first day, they cut the ribbon, they let the kids play. Morgan falls off the monkey bars, and she comes home and says, I think I hurt my arm. So I did what any good father did. I looked, there wasn't any swelling, and I said, hey, walk it off. Um, maybe I didn't go that far, but I basically said, I don't think it's broken. This is, don't think it's broken. So we sent her to school the next day. She comes home the next day and says, my arm's still hurting. And I'm not trying to take away from anything here, but Morgan was and maybe still is a bit of a drama queen, so we really can't ever tell. And what I mean by that is for Morgan, I love her. God made her this way, but things are either amazingly awesome or they're terrible. And so anywhere in here, it gets a little muddy. Like we're not really sure kind of where things are. So we took her to the emergency room. Um, the doc, they did a, so fast forward to the x-ray. The doctor walks in and the doctor never forget this. She said, guess what your daughter did? And I said, no, she did not. And he's, yeah, she, she, she broke her arm. And I cannot tell you in that moment how terrible I felt. Like father of the year for like next 10 years, just done all together. But here's the deal. An x-ray reveals problems. That x-ray didn't heal the problem. And in the same way, the law does the same thing. It shows us how condemned we are. But the question becomes, and the question that Paul takes on, is what about those who didn't have the law? The Gentiles didn't have the Ten Commandments. So what about them? So Paul wants to be very, very clear that the Gentiles who did not have the law of God are still um, completely, even though they're completely without law, they still have a moral law that God put within them, meaning they still have an inner, inward sense of honoring your parents. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't kill. You go to different cultures across this world who don't have the Bible and don't have the church, and they still have laws. They have laws against killing, against stealing. They have laws that um, look down upon you for, for lying. They have um, a picture of how you must re respond in the home. All of these things apart from or without the law of God showing that God has put these laws in our hearts even if we don't have his written law. Look at verse 14. It says it very clearly. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so they don't have it, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. In the words of one theologian, conscience is God's deputy, God's spy, God's voice. Conscience is God's preacher in the heart. God is preaching through our conscience in our heart. If you obey, or excuse me, if you disobey the truth that you have, even if you've never heard of Moses or Jesus, you perish. Not because you haven't heard of Moses and Jesus, but because you have disobeyed what you know. Listen, we have a knowledge of what's right and wrong, and yet we disobey that. So since every person has a conscience and every person has a sense of right and wrong, God judges that person, hear this, on how well they lived up to their own moral standards. And so when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our conscience becomes clean, and we become sensitive now in a new way to sin. We're no longer... We're no longer allowed to sin successfully, but when we sin, the Holy Spirit, better than our conscience, convicts us and leads us where the conscience never can to truth. 
There's a story told about an old Indian chief who was converted. And later, later a missionary asked him, Chief, how are you doing spiritually? Are you experiencing victory over the devil? And it's like this, the chief replied, I have two dogs inside of me, one good, one bad, and they're constantly fighting each other. To which the missionary kind of asked very puzzledly, well, which dog wins? To which the chief said, the one I feed the most. Brothers and sisters, understand this. If you struggle with bitterness, yet all you ever do is feed bitter thoughts into you, guess what's going to come out? Bitterness. If, if you struggle with anger and all you do is take in anger, anger's going to come out. If you struggle with unforgiveness, yet all you can do is think about what people have done to you, it's going to come out. You're feeding that which is destroying you. We have to understand the picture. Yes, our hearts on our own, in ourselves, are condemned before a holy God. That is us. But let me go a step further. It doesn't get any better. Number two, not only are our hearts condemned, number two, our hearts are corrupted. Our hearts are corrupted. And let me just put this clearly. Our hearts are corrupted by sin, which leads to pride in our lives. And that pride, get this, leads us to become hypocrites. This is what Paul is saying. Look at verses 19 and 21. You can see it on the screen. Paul says this. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Paul goes on to, to write and say, listen, you're teaching this, but you're doing it. You're teaching against this, but you're doing the very thing. Listen, we are very very good at becoming hypocritical in the way that we respond. We know the truth. We judge people according to the truth, and yet we do the opposite. I think when you think about a hypocrite, you have to think of, at least consider the classic, and that is the, the notorious criminal Jesse James. Some of you might know him. Others of you are about to hear a little bit about him. But did you know that Jesse James, the notorious murderer, gang member, and bank robber, did you know that he loved church? He loved church. He loved Sundays. On one occasion, it is recorded that he killed a person, robbed a bank, and then went to church to be baptized. I mean, that would be the height of hypocrisy. I mean, just think about it. I don't know um, if, his, if it was a response to guilt or what, but another occasion, he robs a bank, he shoots the cashier, but he goes away quickly, not getting all on the money because he was scheduled to teach a hymn-singing class in his church. He loved Sundays at church, but there was a conflict of interest between what he did on Sundays and what he wanted to be a part of. I don't know if you know this, but it's called hypocrisy. And Paul's point for the Christian is that we have to daily fight against hypocrisy. We have to fight to make sure that the message that we're proclaiming, and I don't know if you know this, every day you're proclaiming a message. You might not think so. You might say, well, no, I don't get into that stuff. Well, let me tell you what you get into. You probably get into politics. You probably get into um, sports. And you probably get into um, talking a whole lot about other people's lives. Every day we preach a message. The question is, do our lives match the sermons that we give? If you, if you preach a pro-family message, do you actually love your family? 
If you preach pro-life, do you actually value human life from the womb to the grave? If you preach about the pro-equality of races, are you actually listening and learning and loving people of other races? If you preach against adultery, are you living a life of lust? If you preach against legalism, are you weighing other people down by the things that you think have to be, have to be done? If you preach on loving the poor, do you actually know a poor person? Are you actually helping any poor individuals? And if you preach about um, you can't outgive God, are you actually being generous? Are you being tight-fisted? We have to make sure that the messages that we are declaring match the lives that we live. And I think part of it is how we read God's word. Sometimes, listen, we think we've done an amazing job. We read the Bible, we check our boxes off, but all we've done is as we read it, we, we say, thou shalt not do this, so-and-so. Thou shalt not. And we think about other people instead of thinking about ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know or argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is this saying to me? Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. And listen to how he ends. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. The more you know about the Bible, the more dangerous it can become if you don't apply it to yourself. We have to begin, we have to start by applying this to our lives. We have to do it. Brothers and sisters, we are so good. We are so good at, at judging everybody else. We're so good at pointing out the hypocrisy of everybody else, aren't we? They're hypocrites, and they're hypocrites, and they're hypocrites. And what we fail to do is see our own hypocrisy. But let me show you our own, our own hypocrisy. There's a church in Lebec, Germany. It's a Lutheran cathedral, one of the most important um, city sites uh, in the city. But as you enter this cathedral, there is an engraving right on the wall right when you walk in. So imagine walking into a church and reading these words. Thus says Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light, but you see me not. You call me the way, but you walk me not. You call me the life, but you live me not. You call me wise, but you follow me not. You call me fair, but you love me not. You call me eternal, but you see me not. You call me noble, but you serve me not. You call me gracious, but you trust me not. You call me might, but you honor me not. You call me just, but you fear me not. And hear this, so if I condemn you, blame me not. Blame me not. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be very, very careful to make sure in all of this when it is so easy and the devil makes it so easy to put the sins of other people before us every day of our lives. And what the word of God, what Paul is trying to do here is make sure before anybody else's sin is placed before you, put your own before you. Put your own sin before you. See your own sin. Fill your own sin. So our hearts are condemned. Our hearts are corrupted. And it's going to get a little uncomfortable for a few minutes. Number three, our hearts must be circumcised. 
Our hearts must be circumcised. And this is going to get a little uncomfortable for a minute or two. But I can assure you it will never get more uncomfortable than it did for me probably 20 or 30 years ago. My father was preaching a message, and he happened to come across a verse in circumcision. And he said, and I kid you not, he said, when Micah was born, they asked us if we wanted to have him circumcised. And I said, shoot, don't only circumcise him, give him all the bells and whistles. I even asked for white wall tires. So if any uncomfortableness that you might feel in this moment, I can assure you can't compare to how I felt in that moment in the youth group as I'm sitting among my peers and my father is speaking about my circumcision. So it's not going to get any worse, I can promise you, in that. But here's the, here's the deal. There's a point to what Paul is saying when he writes these words in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then verse 29, listen or look at the screen. It says this, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So why circumcision? When God gave Abraham this outward sign of an intimate personal relationship that Abraham had with his creator, why did God say in Genesis 17, you must be circumcised? And here's the deal. It was a visual symbol of the penalty for breaking covenant. So Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, and this is so interesting. In the ancient times, you didn't sign your name to bind a deal. You actually acted out the curse that you would accept if you broke covenant. So a man might take some sand and drop it over his head, saying that if I break the promise I made this day, may I become as this dust. Other times, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, they would walk between it, saying, if I break covenant, may you do to me as we just did to that animal. Cut me in half and kill me. Therefore, circumcision, and don't think about it too long, um, is a cutting off in a very intimate and personal way. And what God is saying to Abraham is if you want to be in relationship with me, you need to be circumcised as a sign to you and to everyone that if you break covenant with me, I will cut you off completely. That was the point. I will cut you off. I will cut you off from others. I'll cut you off from life. I'll cut you off from me. God was basically saying this. If you break covenant with me, you will be circumcised. Because I will cut you off from everything. Let me put it this way. Circumcision, in a sense, is like a wedding ring. Your ring is honorable as long as you're faithful. But when you're unfaithful to your spouse, it just becomes a piece of metal. So... It becomes meaningless. It loses its meaning. So wearing a ring doesn't make you married, but if you wear a ring, it's showing people that you are married and people assume that you're faithful. But here's the deal. What's outward doesn't always match what's inward. Circumcision was an important sign of what God wanted to do in the heart of his people. Now, we're done with this. If you have any more questions about circumcision, please ask Brother Curtis. After the service, he will be glad to answer all of your questions. Um, just bring them to him. But I, let, me end, let me end this way. Let me put a question before you. Has there been a change in your heart? That's what Paul is getting at. Has there been a change in your heart? The story has been told about Christ, uh, Dr. Christian Bernard who was the first surgeon to ever perform a heart transplant surgery. After his second heart transplant surgery, the patient wanted to see his old heart. 
So the doctor went to the cupboard and pulled out a jar with the old heart in it. And the, this guy became the first guy ever to hold his old heart. And he held this heart for about 10 minutes, looked at it, and finally he said this. So you are what has given me so much trouble. He turned around, handed the heart back to his doctor. He turned and walked away from his old heart forever. And brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do the same thing. To understand our sick hearts apart from the gospel. To understand that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we've never done it before, to turn to Christ and hand him our, our old hearts. Receive the new that he wants to give us and leave our old with him. Think about this. Suppose I were to ask you, have you ever had a change of heart? What would you answer? Would you say, I, I feel like me and God are okay? Well, that's not what I asked you. What, what if I asked you, are you a believer? Would your answer be, well, I'm a member of First Baptist Church of Ocean Way? Well, that's not what I asked you. What if I were to ask you, have you been born again? What would you say? Would you say, well, I was baptized by you, Pastor Mike, or by Pastor Jordan, or one of the deacons? But that's not what I asked you. What if I said, are you saved? What would you answer? Would you say, well, I've been a Baptist my whole life and I'll be a Baptist forever, bless God. That's not what I asked you. Or what if I asked you this, are you a Christian? What would you say? Would you say, of course I'm a Christian. I was born in America. We're all Christians. But again, that's not what I asked you. It all boils down to this. Who or what are you trusting in for salvation? Let me put it a different way, and, and I want every person in this room to hear this question. In whom will you be trusting in when you take your last breath? In whom will you be trusting in when you take your last breath? And you might say, well, I've, already, I've got it all figured out. Before I die, I'm going to come to Jesus. The problem is you don't know when you're going to die. That's the problem. That's why the Bible says today's the day of salvation. What are you trusting in? When you close your eyes in death, who will you be trusting in for salvation? Yourself? Will you be trusting in your good works? Will you be trusting in the things that you have done? Because the Bible says that won't cut it. Will you be trusting in your family's righteousness, your family's religion? Because according to the Bible, that won't cut it. I want to end this morning with three simple words that will take you all the way from earth to heaven and will impact you not only on earth but also in heaven. Three simple words, and they are these. Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus. He is the only Savior of sinners in this world. Your only hope now and your only hope forever is Jesus, only Jesus. Your only hope when you close your eyes in death, say it with me, is Jesus, only Jesus. I pray that this morning you would understand where you stand before God. Have you ever trusted Christ? Have you ever turned from your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? If you have not, I pray that today would be the day of your salvation. Jesus, only Jesus. But let me also talk to brothers and sisters in Christ across this room. Brothers and sisters, are we living lives of hypocrisy? Are we living lives by which we are so good at calling out other people's sins, but we are so good at ignoring our own? 
And what God is trying to show us today is how sinful we are in ourselves so that we will, as we just sang a few minutes ago, run to God again and again and again and again. Because he will receive us. He'll receive us. Don't ever allow Satan to convince you that God can't forgive me of that, whatever that is. God is fully aware of that, and he has fully offered his forgiveness, his pardon for you. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the praise team forward and end this time together. But let's pray. Fathers, we end this time in your word. We do so, Father, just desiring your will to be done in this moment. Lord, we pray for any that might be in this room, might be listening at home that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today, Lord, you would, by your spirit, allow them to see, God, that they are lost, they are broken, they are hopeless apart from you. And they would understand, as your word says, that, Lord, if, if we call upon the name of the Lord, if, if we believe in our hearts, or if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in our hearts, God, that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. May that happen, God, even right now in this moment. But also, God, us as believers across this room and at home, Lord, help us, God. As your word is telling us, God, help us, Lord, not to be, Lord, just amazing and, and incredible at judging other people, all the while missing the sin that's separating us from you. This missing the sin that's keeping us out of fellowship with you. Holy Spirit, convict us now and lead us to the Father. Finish this time. In Jesus' name.